This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, um, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, at this festival, I chair quite a few events, and every year there's one book that sets my brain on fire. Uh, so I'm delighted to be chairing this event with um, Oscar Guardiola Rivera's book, Story of Death Foretold, which we're going to be talking about today. Um, Oscar Guardiola Rivera teaches international law and international affairs at Birkbeck College, University of London. He has lectured in law, philosophy and politics on three continents and is the author of What If Latin America Ruled the World? Colon, How the South Will Take the North into the 22nd Century and also obviously of this book here that we're going to be talking about today. I should um, mention at this point that uh, this event is sponsored by the University of Edinburgh and in particular the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The university is proud to be a major sponsor of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. So, with that introduction, please welcome Oscar Guardiola Rivera. He's going to read um, some short passages from the book to give you a flavour. Then we're going to have uh, a little conversation amongst ourselves and then we'll open the floor to you. So. Before I do that, let me uh, come clean from the very outset. Uh, I love Scotland. <laughs> uh, not metaphorically, not uh, in the uh, usual sense. I lived in Scotland for uh, four years uh, in Aberdeen, of all places. Uh, uh, I studied there. And uh, uh, I, I've just realized that the inspiration behind uh, the two books that I have presented here at uh, the book festival uh, came from, uh, from Scotland. It was while uh, uh, in uh, Keith Hall near uh, Aberdeen where uh, uh, a woman named Sheila Scott uh, told me how an ancestor of hers had uh, traveled to uh, Colombia in uh, the 18th century. Uh, and uh, I uh, retraced that story, and the story became the story of how is it that the decisive moment that is uh, coming to Scotland in September actually originated and began in Colombia. This is the story of how us <laughs> Colombians are to blame for uh, you guys having to uh, vote on independence. I'll tell you that story later on. Uh, and then uh, uh, I became uh, friends with uh, uh, the Chilean exile community in uh, Aberdeen. And uh, it is uh, uh, to their courage and their uh, love that uh, I would like to uh, dedicate uh, uh, this uh, reading. Radio Magallanes and Radio Candelaria retransmitted the address. These stations, sympathetic to the cause of the people, had escaped Operation Silence. Agenda's voice sounded broken, metallic. Then it went off air. The presenter at Radio Magallanes picked up the transmission. The President of the Republic is in his office at the Presidential Palace. He keeps fighting. The crackle of interference interrupted his words in mid-flow. It was replaced by distortion and atonality as the consonants and syllables dissolved into broken patterns of half repetition. Just when it seemed as if some logic were about to emerge, 
The broadcast reverted to bursts of noise interspersed with silence. This is radio. They want to scare us. Keep transmitting. It was as if the Furies were entering this world through the silences of the radio. Then the voice returned. They won't scare us. We will keep transmitting because we are the voice of the people. We will remain on air for as long as the nation keeps marching forward into the future. The president is Salvador. Which also translates, the president is our savior. The workers have said it on countless occasions, so say we all. We made our voice heard loud and clear last 4th September when over a million peasants and workers took to the streets of Santiago to reassert once more that the only legitimate authority of this country is the one elected by the people. President Allende said it moments ago, and you, the workers of all Chile, heard him. A group of golpistas have betrayed their patriotic allegiance to the laws and the constitution. They are traitors who hide behind their medals and their uniforms. History will judge their betrayal, for they have broken their oath of fidelity. This is Radio Magallanes transmitting to the workers of Chile. In downtown Santiago, battle had broken out in earnest. The 2nd Armored Regiment under the command of General Javier Palacios clashed with loyalist snipers and fighters near the Ministry of Defense, the hub of communications of the conspirators situated on the other side of the mall, La Alameda just behind Plaza Libertad and the Presidential Palace. The duel was fierce. Machine guns and rifles crackled, their deafening sound interrupted only by the roar of the Air Force helicopters circling above. Finding his regiment under a sniper fire from the neighboring Entel Tower, General Palacios ordered a tank to move forward. Earlier on, Palacios had told General Pinochet he could not guarantee that the tanks would operate properly. Their guns might not work through lack of maintenance. For all the talk of military preparedness, Pinochet's army was actually quite unprepared for the coup on 11 September. Luckily for General Palacios, this time the tank worked. The shell it fired shattered the main door of the entrance to the Ministry of Foreign Relations across the mall. Part of the architectural complex of La, La Moneda Palace. It would be the first of many explosions in the presidential palace caused by heavy artillery and bombardment that day. Meanwhile, a few blocks from the palace, ex-president Jorge Alessandri peeped out into the street from one of the windows of his branch office in Plaza de Armas. What the nationalist mentor of Guzman and Willoughby saw left a lasting impression. Units of the army and carabineros had engaged a group of young socialist resistors who had taken up positions in the towers of the cathedral. The soldiers shot at the cathedral from the trees and the monuments of the square, while the small group of resistance fighters responded with rifle fire from on high. Bullets whined, shells exploded, windows shattered. Soon the walls of Alessandri's office were showing the scars of battle, while workers and cleaners run for cover, shrapnel flying in all directions. One of the cleaners put her head through the window to see the duel out close. Alessandri shouted at her to come away. Too late. A bullet went right through her head.
Well, thank you, Oscar. Um, the book is divided into the precedents of, of um, the, the antecedents, if you like, of the coup, the coup itself, and then the aftermath and consequences. So I wanted to ask you a sort of question in each of these three categories. And so my first is, um, uh, after the Bay of Pigs, both Kennedy and Khrushchev made peace overtures, with Kennedy going so far as to speak of genuine peace not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war, not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. And in June 63, he called for a re-examination of our attitude to the Cold War and was supported by both Che Guevara and Khrushchev. And in your book, you say, at this point in history, the three or four most influential men on the planet held a common view on peace and global justice and were ready to act on it. They were about to change the course of history. And then, on the 22nd of November on that same year, Kennedy was assassinated. Khrushchev was ousted on the 16th of October, 64. And as we all know, Che Guevara was killed three years later. Uh, not a coincidence? Uh, surely not. Uh, history is full of these uh, uh, moments when, uh, you know, it looks as if uh, for the first time, uh, things are about to open up and the world is about to change for the better. And then, right then and there, uh, other forces intervene and uh, things change cause for the worst. Of course, uh, uh, this is not a matter of conspiracy. I mean, there's plenty of conspiracy or conspiratorial meetings in this book and on, uh, around this particular event. Uh, but uh, history is mostly about uh, contingent encounters. And uh, it was uh, uh, the uh, uh, contingency of uh, what happened after the missile crisis which uh, uh, obliged uh, the American administration of the time, particularly the person of J.F. Kennedy, to change course. And uh, the president, the then president of the U.S., began to confront uh, his chief of staff and the military establishment. Uh, as you all know, the military establishment at the time perhaps things haven't changed that much, uh, were just uh, ready to go for all-out war. Uh, but uh, uh, Kennedy, uh, who was uh, keeping uh, uh, sort of uh, backdoor conversation with Fidel Castro through uh, a French uh, journalist that kept traveling between uh, uh, Washington and uh, Havana, uh, knew that uh, uh, the consequences would be uh, uh, dire. Uh, and at that point uh, in history, uh, both him and Castro, also uh, uh, Guevara, who was already becoming quite critical of uh, the uh, uh, tendency among some members of the Havana government to move towards the Soviet Union, but also Khrushchev in the, in the Soviet Union, were uh, ready to change the terms uh, of uh, the conversation. And then as uh, you put it uh, uh, rightly, uh, things went uh, wrong. Uh, but perhaps uh, uh, no less important is to notice how it is after uh, uh, Kennedy leaves office, after Khrushchev is ousted, and uh, after uh, uh, the critical voice that was uh, Guevara within the uh, Havana government is silenced, that things uh, uh, take a uh, turn for the worse. Uh, and uh, it will happen that uh, in the eyes of the uh, successive American administrations, particularly the Nixon administration, 
the biggest threat would come not from Castro, uh, at least insofar as the Americas were concerned, but actually from Allende. And the reasons behind that are quite interesting. Uh, in the eyes of uh, Kissinger and others, uh, Allende was uh, even more dangerous than uh, Fidel Castro, precisely because uh, Allende did not look like your usual revolutionary. Imagine this man, uh, a bon vivant. He loved his wine and his empanadas. He was a huge womanizer. Uh, he was a Marxist, but at the same time a Democrat. Uh, neither raw nor cooked. So they couldn't really place it uh, in any of the two uh, uh, sides of the uh, uh, typical Cold War rhetoric. And this was the reason why uh, he began to appear to the eyes of uh, uh, Kissinger and others as uh, kind of the devil himself, the diabolo, the one who's double, the one who's neither here nor there. That made him even more uh, dangerous uh, to the rise, and that's why they uh, uh, decided to take him out even before uh, he became president of Chile. So he had to stand at that one just makes me. <laughs> but it is interesting that he was, he was kind of boring, really, because he wanted to do everything by the book. He wanted to, to abide by the Constitution. He wanted the problems resolved by, with a plebiscite. And this isn't the kind of guns and roses type of revolution. There is a, a marvellous clip uh, uh, in which a very young Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and there is more uh, uh, than a nod to him uh, in uh, uh, the title of this book, and I might tell you why later on. Uh, he uh, criticizes uh, Allende precisely for uh, defending uh, a rule of law and uh, a parliament that were uh, uh, ready to get, to get rid of him. Uh, and yet, this is precisely what, what made uh, uh, Allende a much more dangerous uh, figure. Uh, he uh, was of the conviction that, the, uh, 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 that armed struggle was not the royal road uh, to social transformation, that the model which had uh, been triumphant in uh, the island of Cuba was very uh, specific and uh, could not be uh, uh, exported uh, elsewhere. Uh, and he was also tapping into a very long tradition of uh, socialist uh, transformation through uh, transformation of institutions and the state. Uh, and he remained committed to that uh, uh, road uh, for transformation till the very end. Uh, irony of ironies. Nowadays, in Latin America, where, in case you didn't know, most governments turn to the left. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, interesting things are happening here. Interesting things are also happening over there. Uh, they have followed precisely the uh, uh, agenda model. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea being that you have to transform the relationship between the state and its people so, that, uh, uh, so, so as to uh, recognize that politics belongs, begins, and ends in the streets, not uh, in close, uh, uh, in close corridors, the close corridors of Parliament or the Oval Office, and uh, uh, this was the result, uh, as I said, of, of a long tradition of uh, activism in uh, uh, Chile and the rest of the Americas, going back to uh, uh, the uh, late 19th century and the early 20th century. Uh, that tradition proved so fruitful, or as I uh, put it somewhere in the book, uh, uh, this. Uh, uh, the, 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 the words of the people, which were like wings, allowed them 
to uh, fly so high that only by unleashing uh, the vengeful furies uh, could they be stopped. Mm. So you, you talk about the generals, the heads of the armed forces. Well, not only the heads, but the generals. So some of them are clearly right-wing, but there's another group of generalists, uh, generals who are, you describe as constitutionalists. So they believe in the rule of law, or, law and order and believe that the army is there to defend the constitution. So let's talk about Pinochet. Which side did he fall on? Uh, uh, you know, Pinochet <laughs> turned out to, to become, uh, 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 against my will, I guess, one of the most interesting characters I encountered while uh, doing uh, this research because, uh, in a sense, uh, he was destined to become uh, Allende's nemesis. They were uh, similar at least in so far as neither of them could be categorized very easily. Of course, as a, mat, uh, you know, as a whole, uh, the uh, tradition of the military, not only in Chile, but in the rest of uh, Latin America, is pretty conservative. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, army in particular owes its origins in uh, most of uh, uh, post-independent uh, Latin America to uh, uh, German models. Uh, the Navy in particular owes a great uh, uh, deal to the British Navy, particularly in the case of uh, Chile. Uh, and that uh, uh, created a sort of uh, intertwinement between uh, uh, ideas of uh, free, uh, freedom of commerce and uh, 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 notions of uh, uh, security and, and uh, nationalism. So as a whole, the army did follow that uh, you know, typically conservative uh, route. But at the same time, they were uh, uh, very committed to uh, 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 not to intervene in matters decided uh, uh, through democratic means. And these were the constitutionalists who were the most influential uh, within the army right until uh, the very year of the coup. In fact, uh, the coup had to be done within the army. There was a sort of internal coup. Uh, those who were for... Uh, uh, the ousting of Allende had to get rid of uh, uh, most of their uh, high-ranking high ranking companions in order to then uh, uh, be able to lead uh, the military against uh, the president. Uh, in the case of uh, uh, Pinochet, uh, when he decides to go over to the side of the golpistas, uh, he uh, uh, makes it very clear that uh, in case something happened to him, uh, the other golpistas would have to uh, appeal to the sixth-ranking member of the army under him, which means that uh, uh, the other four uh, were uh, not to be trusted because they were constitutionalists. But even even Allende, him, even uh, Pinochet himself, uh, you know, there is a plenty of debate as to whether or not he was the originator of uh, the coup. I think that debate can be settled. He wasn't. Uh, uh, the, the origin of the coup is in the, in the Navy, at least insofar as the armed forces are concerned. Uh, and uh, others debate well, you know, when uh, uh, did he uh, go over to the side of the Golpistas. The fact of the matter is that uh, probably uh, nobody knew. Uh, even Except the, the day before, on the 10th of September. Exactly. He nobody knew because <laughs> he himself did not know. Uh, he was... The, you're going, this is fantastic. He must have been the first uh, uh, general to uh, uh, arrive late to his own coup d'etat. <laughs> uh, he arrived late. 
So, uh, so late that uh, the other, the other commanders, the Air Force commander and and, and the uh, 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 Navy commander, were ready to go to go uh, ahead with it uh, without him. Uh, and uh, this explains why uh, Allende uh, trusted him till the very end. Mm -hmm. He learns of his betrayal when he's already uh, uh, under fire in the uh, uh, presidential palace. Uh, but there is one very crucial detail which have com has come to light very recently. Uh, General Pinochet was not your usual villain. You know, we would like to think that our villains are, are uh, 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 you know, ignoramuses who never touch a, a book. Well, uh, Pinochet was a bibliophile. Uh, at the end of his life, he owned uh, uh, a library uh, of uh, 60,000 volumes. Uh, and uh, at least 40% of uh, his library was dedicated to the historical character he uh, liked the most, Napoleon. And, uh, uh, the, uh, and a third of uh, the library dedicated to Napoleon is dedicated to one particular event, the coup of 18 Brumaire. Uh, and if you go and uh, uh, look at what happened uh, on the 18 Brumaire, uh, you would learn that actually Napoleon was not among the designers, the original designers of the coup, uh, that uh, he uh, 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 makes himself the, the central uh, part of the coup later in, in the day, and that he did so uh, by a strategy of uh, setting up a sort of uh, parallel army of his own. This is exactly what uh, Pinochet did. Uh, and this is uh, enough evidence uh, 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 to uh, argue that actually, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, Pinochet uh, at the end saw his Napoleon moment. <laughs> um, and the, I think you say in your book that his wife had something to do with it. You describe her as Lady Macbeth. Yes. <laughs> Another um, no. parallel with Scotland, maybe. No question <laughs> behind it. Uh, uh, she was always... Uh, uh, poking him. She was always telling him uh, how was it that uh, the other generals, particularly General Carlos Prat, who was his superior and uh, with whom uh, Pinochet had a very peculiar uh, relationship. He admired him a lot, but he also uh, had feelings for him that uh, uh, bordered on uh, jealousy and resentment because uh, Prat was your genuine intellectual. In fact, uh, uh, Pinochet began later to teach the same course that General Prats was teaching, geopolitics. Uh, and, and you can see there that, that, that he's trying to uh, catch up with, with his uh, uh, nemesis. Uh, and uh, his wife would also uh, tell him that even the politicians would look down on him uh, because uh, uh, you know, he appeared uh, to them uh, as uh, not very clever, just a sort of uh, mediocre figure that had advanced almost by accident and so on and so forth. And there is some truth to, to, that, uh, to that observation. Uh, there are uh, declarations by members of uh, uh, the agenda government, but also uh, of uh, the opposition, uh, which distrust uh, uh, Pinochet. Uh, so Pinochet finds himself distrusted by both the elite and uh, uh, the leaders of the Chilean Revolution. And that may have something to do with uh, uh, the decisions that he would uh, uh, make later on. He would, uh, uh, he would become uh, this, uh, the sort of uh, uh, far-right uh, uh, populist who uh, uh, you know, is always mistrustful of both uh, the elite and the so-called snobbery of the elite, but also 
of uh, uh, those who uh, seek to transform uh, things. And uh, uh, again, this uh, has something to do with the, with the fact that he set up uh, his own uh, uh, parallel political uh, police, which uh, would in time become the infamous uh, Dina, uh, precisely in order to protect his position, which he always saw threatened from all sides. Um, I think it's uh, well. I think everybody here will know about the um, violence that happened after the coup. But what's interesting about it is that the burning of Neruda's library, the destruction of so many books and so many cultural institutions was all about destroying the legacy of, of Allende. They wanted Allende to be completely forgotten, completely written out of history. But the, for some of the generals were genuinely worried about Allende's ghost. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, reality does become magic realism or tragic realism, if you prefer, uh, in these uh, years. Uh, there are at least uh, uh, three reasons for saying that. The first one is that uh, Allende, or shall, shall I say, the corpse of Allende, became the character of uh, uh, a magical realist novel. Uh, insofar as he, as, uh, uh, he refused to uh, lay low uh, on the earth. Uh, he, was, uh, he was buried in secrecy. Uh, he, he's, you know, the facts around his burial were hidden. Uh, and then he would be unburied and then buried again and again and again. So as, as, as in uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, or uh, uh, you know, as, if it were, as if he were a character uh, uh, of a Juan Rulfo uh, novel, he came coming back from the dead uh, and wouldn't uh, uh, let go. And you see that the, the concern with uh, the memory of agenda and the words of agenda from the very outset. The second, the second reason has to do with the passage that I, uh, that I just read. After, after, uh, these, uh, uh, after the bombardment, uh, agenda will speak for the last time. And uh, his words were uh, uh, recorded just by chance. And the story of how those recorded words were saved is, you know, it's an amazing story on its own. Uh, it so happened that those words would uh, uh, be retransmitted uh, uh, on the internet quite recently, and they would become the basis for the newer generation of uh, 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 Chileans to rebuild a memory that had been hidden to them from their parents, no matter the, uh, uh, you know, which, from which part of the political spectrum they would come. So again, in that way, uh, in a very concrete way, the ghost of Agenda become, became a digital ghost, and it, it became triumphant as such. And then uh, uh, the third uh, uh, reason has to do with the power of uh, uh, literature and storytelling. Uh, immediately after, after uh, his death, the, there began a debate uh, uh, concerning whether or not he had killed himself or been killed in battle. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why I decided uh, uh, not to uh, use the format of a novel. This was going to be a novel uh, at some point. Uh, neither that nor uh, the other format, which is uh, typical in Latin American literature, which is that of the, the epic, the epic of the victorious military hero. He wasn't that, but he wasn't uh, either uh, the martyr uh, ready to embrace uh, uh, death for its cause. He said so repeatedly. That's not what he wanted. Uh, rather, 
what, uh, uh, what animated his actions were uh, uh, feelings of courage and love. And uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, animates uh, 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 his ghost in a way that uh, uh, allows them to uh, uh, keep talking to uh, different generations. In fact, when you hear his uh, uh, last speech, you realize very quickly that he is talking to a future uh, generation. He is asking them to pick up. And again, uh, as I said, the beautiful, most beautiful thing uh, for me was uh, to see how the younger Chilean generation, who was born, of course, uh, uh, way after these events uh, took place, began to reconstruct uh, th their own memory and their own subjectivity on the basis of these uh, uh, words, fragments, uh, images. Uh, and uh, that is uh, why perhaps they developed such an interesting uh, political consciousness, because they were uh, obliged to uh, uh, rewrite their own history. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting in the book that you talk, um, you, you emphasize really the role of women in both the uh, lead up to Allende's presidency and during his presidency and um, his very moving conversation with Beatriz, his daughter, uh, his final, final talk with her. If I could... Uh if I could rewrite this book uh, as a novel, my two main characters would be uh, Carmen Lasso uh, and Beatriz Allende. Uh, Carmen was, uh, uh, is the longest uh, uh, serving member, or was the longest uh, serving uh, uh, member of parliament in, in, in Chile, and uh, one of the founding figures of the Socialist Party uh, at the very beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and uh, she has this amazing way of uh, explaining uh, how they would uh, talk to people when the Socialist Party was banned uh, uh, following uh, America's uh, uh, turn uh, against uh, uh, rapprochement with the Soviet Union in 1948. Uh, she would say, and I have to stand up again because <laughs> this is how she described it to me, she, she would say, you know, we would go into the main uh, uh, um, square. I would pull out of my pocket a harmonica and I would begin to sing and dance a cumbia. A cumbia cienaguera que se baila suave sona. And the first to arrive would be the kids. And with the kids also dancing, then after the kids would come their mothers. So the main, uh, 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 the main uh, 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 protagonist of uh, political rallies would be women. Uh, Cue another uh, important event, uh, uh, another important fact. In Latin America, all uh, left-leaning, uh, all or most left-leaning parties were founded at the begin, at the, in the late 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century by women, all of them, around the continent. And that is something that deserves uh, uh, a further study and discussion. So behind the kids and uh, the women would come the parents. And suddenly, after everybody was dancing, she would cue Salvador Allende. <laughs> now it was his turn. Salvador was a very good tango dancer. He loved tangos. And he would speak in a way that would remind people of uh, 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 the lines of tangos, which were also the same lines they would read later on in, in fotonovelas, uh, the equivalent of soap operas in, in pulp uh, 
uh, fiction format, and so on and so forth. And then, when that connection was uh, established there in the street, they would begin to talk politics. I love that sequence. From dancing and music to politics. Very different from what we have now. And yet, I've been coming to, to Scotland on the verge of that decisive moment in next September. And I've seen something very similar. And I, that, that's what I love the most about what is happening here. People discussing these things in the streets. People talking about these things for one, uh, you know, presenting arguments one way or another. People taking to the streets once more. People reclaiming a space as their own. People becoming expect actors rather than merely spectators. That's what the Chilean way was all about. That's what the Chilean revolution was all about. And it was led by women. Perhaps uh, there is a lesson there for us uh, right now. I'll go back and sit. <laughs> I suppose there is a sense in which the coup against Salvador Allende was the start of the search for global justice. And you write in your book about the Bertrand Russell's tribunals. Oh, I love that story. I love that story. <laughs> I love the stories in we, which... Uh, he didn't tell me to ask him that, by the way. <laughs> I, 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 love, I love stories in which... Uh, uh, in which uh, 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 Brit you know, the, the, the histories of uh, Britain and Latin America become intertwined. I, I love them. And I love them because nobody <laughs> no seems to know them, which is absolutely amazing. Of course you all know about Bertrand Russell. Of course you all know about the, the, Bertrand, the first Bert Bertrand Russell Tribunal. Uh, you know about Jean Paul Sartre and Bertrand Russell working together to extend the uh, meaning of the term genocide and the principles of the Nuremberg Trials so that they could also be applied to the victors in, the, in, the, in World War II, uh, that is to say, to, America, uh, uh, to America's intervention in Vietnam at the time. What most people do not know is that after uh, Russell and Saad were uh, uh, out of the picture, so to speak, the baton was taken by uh, Lat their Latin American colleagues. The second Russell Tribunal was put together in 1974, immediately after the events of uh, the 11th of September uh, in the previous year. And, that, and the reason was, of course, Chile. The president of the second uh, Russell Tribunal was none other than Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And uh, 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 among the members of the jury of that People's Tribunal were the Argentinian writer Julio Cortázar, uh, the Dominican writer Juan Bosch, a number of uh, uh, very well-known uh, uh, writers and musicians from Brazil, important uh, uh, protagonist uh, of these events. And what they did was to uh, reinvent uh, 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 what uh, or re-describe the legacy of Russell and Saad so that it could also be applied to uh, intervention, to cases of military intervention in which uh, multinationals and the interest of multinationals uh, were also being protected. And as a result of that, uh, Julio Cortázar wrote a, uh, a small novella, which uh, I dare anyone to tell me uh, if uh, he or she has read it. Uh, it has a very peculiar title. It, the title is uh, Fantomas versus the Multinational Vampires. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody remembers that, 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 that novella by Cortázar. It's a wonderful experiment. 
because it's half uh, literature. It is also, it, he uses uh, uh, visual cutouts. It's also part graphic novel, uh, quite ahead of his time. And at the end of the novel, you find this, the, the sentence, the judgment uh, given by the uh, uh, Second Russell Tribunal. And what you find there is a small gem, a beautiful gem. It's just a still, uh, uh, you know, still, still a raw gem. The, its full potency has not been uh, uh, exploited yet. Uh, it uh, speaks to the fact that many of the crimes that we see around us, many of the wars that we see around us, plenty of the uh, injustice that we see at the international level has to do with the uh, uh, protection of financiers, bankers, and multinationals. And let me give you, just to uh, uh, end uh, uh, there, this part of uh, uh, the questioning, uh, two pieces of evidence. The first one comes from a letter written by H. Hendricks and R. Barrales to E. J. Garrity. The former were uh, the uh, uh, presidents of... Uh, uh, multinational communications multinational ITT in Chile. The second is uh, the uh, uh, vice president of uh, ITT. This is the content of the letter. A constitutional solution, for instance, could result from massive internal disorders, strikes, urban and rural warfare. This would morally justify an armed forces intervention for an indefinite period. The key of this letter uh, lies with the date. It is dated 1970, way before uh, uh, Agenda uh, was uh, named candidate uh, for the popular coalition, way before he, he would win the elections, way before he was confirmed as uh, president of Chile. So, the debate uh, uh, concerning whether or not uh, the coup in Chile was the result of the mismanagement of the economy uh, by Allende and the Popular Coalition turns out to be moot. Because, as you can see, right before uh, they even had the chance uh, to manage or mismanage uh, uh, the economy, uh, uh, the course of, of events had already been decided and not necessarily where you think it was, not just in the corridors of uh, uh, the Oval Office. But actually, even when it comes to the intervention of the United States, it is important to know that the uh, uh, first encounter between uh, the uh, Chilean golpistas and the Nixon administration <coughs> takes place at the behest of the CEO of Pepsi-Cola, who was a very good friend of... Uh, 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 Agustin Edwards, the patriarch of a very powerful banking and media family uh, in Chile, and also had also given Richard Nixon his first uh, uh, job as a lawyer. There you see, uh, you see the origins of our world emerging there. The second letter, an action prepared to the last detail, brilliantly executed. Agenda's government has encountered the end it deserved. In the future, Chile will be an ever more interesting market for our products. <laughs> this is a cable sent from Hirsch Chemical Chile to its Frankfurt headquarters 
1973, right after the coup, a month and a half after the coup. So here, in between those two, uh, you have uh, uh, kind of the time frame for the myth of origin of our world, if, if you like. Uh, and in between, there is a letter that the uh, uh, candidate of the opposition, uh, the candidate who had led the opposition against uh, Allende uh, in uh, the crucial 1971 elections, sent to General Carlos Prats. Uh, uh, his name was Radomiro Tomic. He was a Christian Democrat, a progressive Christian Democrat. Uh, and he tells the general, well, it all happened as in Greek tragedies. Everyone knew it would happen. Everyone did uh, uh, everything uh, they could in order to avoid it. And yet, they all played the role they had to play to make it happen. The stuff of tragedy. That is why it is titled The Story of a Death Foretold. Uh, it looks a lot uh, uh, as if the myth of origin of our world, if it is true that what we call neo neoliberalism, which is neither new nor liberal, uh, was <laughs> born in Chile, uh, then uh, uh, it is the case that that myth belongs to the genre of tragedies. Thank you. Well, uh, we have 15 minutes for questions. So if you have a question, if you would put your hand up, please, and wait for a microphone to come to you so that we can all hear the question. I've got lots more questions if you don't, so. <laughs> okay, there's two in the front row, one there and one there. You've just ruined my day, you realize. <laughs> I think that um, Allende was elected on a minority vote when he was elected, but nevertheless he was elected except as president of Chile. I thought, I was living in Argentina at the time, I thought that the danger that he threatened was not in himself, but in the spread of communism uh, from Cuba into South America through Allende's government. Do you agree with that? The first part is uh, uh, very interesting and it needs to be uh, uh, examined in, in uh, context. Uh, the uh, constitutional uh, uh, regime of Chile at the time uh, was not entirely dissimilar to the parliamentarian system uh, uh, that runs uh, Britain. So although it is uh, true that uh, Allende uh, was elected uh, uh, with uh, a effect, what would effectively be a third of the vote, one has to take into account that uh, his immediate opponent, Radomiro uh, Tomic of the Christian Democrat Party, ran on a platform that was almost absolutely uh, uh, the same as that of Allende. So if you put them together, what you... Uh, obtain is the fact that 66% of uh, uh, Chileans voted for uh, social transformation. Uh, now, given the fact that uh, uh, neither of the candidates uh, had uh, won a clear uh, majority, what followed uh, was something very similar to what is known here as a hung parliament. Uh, so, uh, because there is no uh, monarch in, in Chile, uh, the decision uh, has to be made by Parliament, whether to confirm uh, the, uh, uh, as president the one who can uh, uh, prove that he can, that he can form a government. So after the election, uh, the progressive side of the Christian Democrats and the coalition uh, 
uh, came together, came very close. And uh, Tomic and uh, his uh, followers supported the confirmation of Allende. So Allende was uh, confirmed uh, more or less in the same way uh, in which the current uh, uh, liberal conservative government was confirmed in Westminster. Uh, mind you, uh, in Britain, here in, here in Britain, uh, elections have been uh, won by parties uh, 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 holding no more than a third of uh, uh, the vote uh, since uh, at least uh, uh, the second uh, uh, Blair administration. So the situation was not uh, uh, very dissimilar, and my point here would be that uh, uh, one cannot say that uh, Allende attempted a program of radical reform without enough uh, uh, electoral support. Uh, it is also a fact that in uh, uh, successive elections, the popular coalition's vote uh, went uh, up rather than down. Uh, and in fact, in 1973, uh, after a year and a half of a scarcity, uh, violence in the streets, and so on and so forth, uh, the popular coalition held uh, to uh, a uh, very important uh, uh, a number of the votes, which is perhaps uh, what uh, uh, you know, pushed uh, some of the Golpistas to go uh, outside of the constitutional frame uh, for uh, what they considered a solution. Uh, as to the second part of the question, uh, as I already uh, hinted while uh, uh, describing the way that Allende appeared to uh, the American uh, Nixon administration, uh, the, uh, the real worry was uh, the fact that uh, Allende uh, seemed to herald a different form of socialism that was not, precisely not, the one that uh, had been seen in Cuba. And this presented a huge, uh, a huge problem. And in fact, there are quite a few uh, documents released uh, recently by the uh, NSA, uh, which uh, uh, tell us uh, that uh, one of the things uh, uh, that uh, Kissinger uh, and uh, uh, Nixon and, and many officials in the U.S. administration feared the most was the possibility uh, that uh, Allende's program of reform would fail and he would lose the, uh, the next election because he would have proven that democracy could actually deal with communism. And we must remember that back then in the 1970s, the choice that was being presented to the people were always presented with uh, uh, dual choices that are in fact forced choices was between communism and democracy as if communism was the exact opposite of democracy. So for a democratic regime to prove that it could go undergo an, uh, uh, a Marxist administration and uh, uh, sideline it if, if it uh, uh, didn't work uh, properly and so on and so forth would have been uh, uh, much more complicated. After all, you, can, you could always point uh, the finger towards Cuba and say, well, there are no elections there. These guys won uh, uh, by force and so on and so forth. You couldn't say the same about Allende. So as Kissinger puts it in one of these documents, uh, uh, the US could not just uh, uh, go directly against them because they would create another Tito in uh, uh, South America. That, that, was, uh, that was his, uh, those were his... Uh, exact words. So what they feared was the kind of uh, uh, that uh, leftism and socialism would evolve into something that would that could not be imprisoned within the strictures of uh, Cold War rhetoric. There's a question here. 
Hi. I wonder if the roots of it perhaps go a little bit further back than that as well, into the, the, the School of Chicago and the economic theories of Milton Friedman, which were kind of developing during the course of the 1950s. And was Chile, even prior to Allende's um, election victory, not kind of potentially targeted as a, as a social experiment in any case? Thanks for that question. have to stand <laughs> up again. <laughs> One of the most wonderful uh, things that I encountered doing research for, for this book, and, and uh, perhaps the one thing that is uh, most original about it, is uh, uh, the fact that uh, uh, what I call in the book the Chilean young conservatives, which uh, were mentioned before, Willoughby, De Castro, Jaime Guzman, those who would, be, who, who would be named later on as the Chicago boys, need not need to wait uh, for Milton Friedman to come from uh, the University of Chicago. The reason is this. They had been schooled at the Universidad Católica in Chile. And Universidad Católica in Chile, particularly the law school at the time, uh, was under uh, the uh, influence of uh, 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 politicians and economists who uh, were paying attention to what was happening in Spain. Uh, and let us uh, remember that in 1957, and this had begun before, uh, the Spanish Francoist regime, the Falangista regime, underwent a transformation. It began to liberalize its, its economy. It did so because it found uh, uh, ideological support for what we now call neoliberalism among 16th century uh, Spanish theo Catholic theologians. Luis de Molina among them, who was uh, uh, in fact the person who coined uh, the idea that uh, according to which government should not intervene in the establishment of prices, but rather prices should be established by the market. 16th century. In 1948, uh, the leader of the uh, Austrian uh, uh, School of e Economics uh, uh, goes, uh, travels to Spain, uh, talks uh, to uh, uh, von Hayek, talks to uh, a group of uh, uh, Catalonian uh, uh, economists who were very schooled on the legacy of the 16th century theologians. Uh, and uh, it is from that encounter that you uh, obtain this intertwinement, the intertwinement that gives you the idea according to which uh, whenever a government intervenes in the economy, uh, particularly uh, setting prices and uh, so on and so forth, it becomes illegitimate because those liberties are a matter of, you know, the liberties of commerce and economics are a matter of natural law. So what we have here is uh, a, an economic theology. That economic theology was, uh, uh, became the central uh, tenet of Francoism in Spain. This is the reason why I said before that neoliberalism was a, a bad moniker. It is not liberal. Many of uh, uh, its tenets uh, uh, are to be found in, this, in the theology of hatred that uh, animated uh, um, uh, uh, the uh, revolt against the Spanish uh, Republic. Remember, Yes, World War II was won pretty much everywhere, not in Spain. And if Spain was not, what happened in Spain was not terribly influential uh, in Europe, it was incredibly influential in Latin America. That 
that connection has not been made just yet. So there you, found, you find, uh, uh, and there are plenty of writings by Willoughby and De Castro, who would become a Minister of Finance uh, under Pinochet, and uh, Jaime Guzman, the leader of this young conservative movement, who in fact became the writer of the, of the Chilean constitution that still rules the country. Uh, what you see is precisely uh, uh, the idea of a small state, uh, uh, free reign for the market, and so on and so forth. What happened, you know, their genius was to notice the resonances between that and what was coming uh, from uh, Chicago. Many of their students traveled, uh, did travel to Chicago, and when they came back, uh, they saw a perfect resonance between this uh, Catholic, uh, this uh, uh, extremely, uh, extreme religious view of e economics and uh, the sorts of things that, uh, 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 that uh, Friedman and others uh, were defending in Chicago. Uh, so the juxtaposition happened almost uh, naturally. But again, it is, a misno it, it is a bit of a mistake to think that it was uh, 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 that, that Chicago, you know, the Chicago boys were born in, in uh, uh, Chicago and that neoliberalism was born only in the corridors of the University of Chicago. There is another point of origin, and that point of origin leads towards a much darker kind of politics. Another question um, right at the back. Yeah. Staying with um, Chicago, but on a slightly different level, um, one remembers that uh, Al Capone was finally put in prison because of um, non-payment of tax. I just wondered if you had uh, knew anything more, if there's been any development in the fact that um, the Pinochet family have become enormously rich and whether there's any chance of clawing any of that back now or whether that's a lost cause. Uh, uh, it's, it's wonderful what you just said uh, uh, reminds us of uh, the times we live in. Uh, uh, two things. First, uh, it speaks volumes uh, uh, about how thwarted our, our views on, on politics and morality are uh, to uh, uh, realize that uh, the one fact that made uh, uh, Pinochet vulnerable in the eyes of those who supported him was not the fact that he, that he disappeared, tens of thousands of people, uh, nor the fact that uh, he himself was uh, uh, at the leading end of uh, the uh, secret police, nor the fact that... Uh, uh, Millions uh, went into exile and uh, many others uh, uh, were killed. But the fact that he enriched himself. That's what uh, 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 buried uh, or um, uh, tainted uh, his legacy. Uh, so far, no further... Uh, uh, I mean, there are some uh, light criminal cases against uh, members of the family. Uh, but so far, no real cases have been made against the economic beneficiaries of that period. And who do you think those uh, beneficiaries turn out to be? Well, more or less the same guys who were already uh, uh, in cahoots uh, with the Nixon administration, who happened to be the same guys who had ousted yet another Chilean president a century before. I already mentioned their names, so there is no need to repeat it. But what, you, uh, what uh, uh, your uh, uh, very important opinion allows us to remember is uh, precisely the contrast that exists nowadays between 
the legacy of the Russell Tribunal that was ready to uh, uh, apply uh, the Nuremberg principles and the principles of human rights law to those who benefit economically from, from uh, uh, crimes, conflicts and wars, and the fact that nowadays uh, uh, the pos even the possibility of uh, uh, calling to account uh, under law ben economic beneficiaries is uh, uh, almost uh, uh, nowhere to be seen. Uh, mind you, it is just now, in recent years, that in Argentina, some of the cases that were, uh, 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 you know, initiated against uh, uh, the, uh, 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 you know, the members of the dictatorship and, and their accomplices are now beginning to veer towards those who benefited economically. And this has something to do with uh, uh, the uh, current situation in Argentina. Uh, again, remember what I just said about why we Colombians are to blame for your problems. Uh, you guys had to, tr had to sign, let us say, in a hush-hush tone of voice, we're obliged to, but I did not say that, did I? Uh, sign the Treaty of Union because of the huge debt acquired after the, uh, the Darien experience in the Isthmus of Panama went belly up. <laughs> and we're talking 18th century, right? Early 18th century. Perhaps not that different from uh, uh, the post-Chile uh, situation in which finance, which is not even capitalistic, by the way, is pure mercantilism, has become the law of the law. And it is very difficult to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, find responsibilities among uh, those who benefit economically. I'm sorry uh, we've run out of time, but um, if you have questions for Oscar, I'm sure he'll be delighted to answer them when he's signing the copies of, your book, of his book. And if you, d if you only buy one book at this festival, buy this one, because you've already heard so many ideas, and so many ideas we haven't even managed to talk about. But please join with me in thanking Oscar very but much. Before you do, let me just finish by reminding you <laughs> that true revolutionary transformations do happen because of the combination of two things, two feelings, love and courage. So let me express my admiration for the love and courage that is being demonstrated by Scots, Scottish people to the rest of Britain and the world. So it is you who should applaud yourselves. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.